Well, it's uh, good to be with you, and yes, happy uh, Father's Day. You know, we need to be careful about uh, Father's Day and Mother's Day. My, my kids have been watching what happens on these days. They see the special treatment that the moms and the, and the dads get, so they've been lobbying for Kids' Day. Kids' Day. In fact, I think the recent proposal is for a Brother's Day and a Sister's Day. Uh, now, my wife and I, we're going we're gonna to stop this movement. Uh, we've, we've, we don't want Hallmark to hear about it. Well, we'd all be in trouble if this gets commercialized. And so we've told them that you guys don't get it. Every day is Kids' Day. We, we, we always make your meals for you. We buy all your clothes, so at least at my kids' ages. Uh, well, m- while my kids might be taking for granted a little bit uh, their, the goodness of their life as kids, I know sometimes I take for granted coming to church. Sometimes I have to remind myself, why do we do this again? Why do we gather together like this? Uh, it's not just to see people I wouldn't otherwise see. It's, it's not just habit or obligation. And, and I've been thinking recently that one of the ways to think about what church, what the body of Christ is about as we gather together in these local communities is we come together to rehearse We come together to rehearse whose we are and who we are. And in light of that, what our lives are about in this world. We we come together to remind ourselves that we belong to him. that, That we were bought with a price. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then in light of that, we come to remind ourselves and rehearse who we are. That is, as Paul says in Romans 8, the spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. That fundamentally who we are at the core of our being in our spirit is that we are beloved children of Abba Father. That's who we are. And then in light of all of that, our lives are going to look different in this world. And so we rehearse How then should we live? How does life look differently for us, given whose we are and who we are? You know, uh, my son's in middle school, and uh, he was in a music theater production this this last spring, and I I helped with it. And so I was there on their first day of rehearsal, and they were doing a Broadway review, so songs from all these different musicals. And one of, the, one of the musicals they were doing a song from was the musical Matilda. Maybe you've heard of the musical Matilda. And they were doing this song. I kind of liked this song. And I remember that first day of rehearsal. Didn't sound very good. The choreography didn't look very good. And I remember thinking, <laughs> are they going to make it? Uh, this could be a very painful show to watch. And, um, and yet they rehearsed. And they rehearsed. And they rehearsed those songs over and over and over again. And on opening night, I was backstage helping and I found myself peeking through the curtains to watch that song because they sound pretty good now and they look pretty good. And there's something that happens when the people of God come together to rehearse whose we are and who we are. And what our lives are meant to look like. As we rehearse that together, we start to look and sound more like Jesus. And so it's good to be with you this morning because I hope that's why you came to rehearse together. And I want to rehearse a particular New Testament concept together the concept of disciple. 
the concept of disciple. If you have your Bibles or you want to grab one, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And the passage will also be up here on the screen. But as you're turning to that passage, I want you to imagine something with me for a second. I want you to imagine that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were having a conversation before the creation of the world. Now, we don't really know that they had this conversation, but they had to decide together a lot of things, right? Uh, For instance, they had to decide, uh, particularly, when are we going to send Jesus to save the world? To, To what family will he be born? In what city? What will be the circumstances? Little did they know, well, I guess they did know that they were also deciding what our Christmas pageants would look like for, a year, you know, for the years to come. But they had to decide the details of the incarnation. But at some point then they had to decide, okay, when Jesus begins his public ministry, what language is he going to use? What paradigm, what, what concept is he going to use to explain the relationship of God and his people? The God of the universe is going to become incarnate in the person of Jesus, and he's going to teach what what language is he going to use to describe relationship with himself? I'd like to imagine it's the Holy Spirit who said, I have an idea. How about vine and branches? I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, you'll bear much fruit. And Jesus says, yeah, that's a good one. I'll use that one. And he typed it in his iPhone or he just remembered it. And then maybe God the Father said, well, I've always uh, used the language of shepherd and sheep. And Jesus said, yeah, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. And then someone else said, what about bride and bridegroom? What about bread of life for those who are hungry? What about living water for those who are thirsty? And we see in all of these images that they help us understand who we are in Christ Jesus. Yes, we do abide in the vine. Yes, we we are guided by the good shepherd. Yes, we are loved by the groom. Yes, we do come to the bread of life. We do come to the living waters to enliven us. But what was going to be the language that Jesus uses more than any other? What was going to be the concept that becomes dominant and primary? You know what it is? It's disciple. More than any other term in the four gospels, the term disciple is used to refer to a follower of Jesus. Over 230 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word disciple is used to explain his followers' relationship with himself. And it wasn't just the first century followers. Jesus, in his great commission, says, go into all the world and make disciples. The disciples weren't just those first 12, but make disciples. We are disciples of Jesus. In fact, in the book of Acts, about 28 times, the word disciple is used to refer to new believers in Jesus. What is this language, this paradigm of discipleship that that the Godhead chose it to help us understand our relationship with him? Well, I want to look at Matthew chapter 4. I think this will open a window into this. 
In Matthew 4, verse 18, Jesus says, or the, uh, Matthew says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they left their father on Father's Day. Well, it probably wasn't Father's Day. but And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And then jumping down to chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his mathetos, his disciples, his students came to him. And then he opened his mouth and began to teach. When Andrew and Peter and James and John and the other early followers of Jesus, when they heard this call to follow me, they immediately understood that this was a call into a disciple-master relationship. They leave everything and they begin to follow Jesus. This is what he invited them into was this discipleship relationship. And I think we can understand why Jesus chose this terminology as we begin to think together about what is it, what does it mean to be a disciple? You see, in the first century, a disciple would have immediately understood two things. When, when a rabbi called a student to be a disciple or when he had a disciple, uh, they, they would understand that they had a primary goal in their life. And their primary goal was to be a student of the rabbi. Their primary goal was to learn the rabbi's interpretation of the law and to learn it so well that they could teach it to others. That's what it just meant to be a disciple. And so when we come to Jesus as his disciples, we come as students, as learners, as pupils of his teaching. Sometimes we present uh, scripture, Bible study, uh, Bible reading, Bible memorization as a good thing to do after you get saved. But you know, really, that's just what it is to follow Jesus. Part of what we are when we turn our lives over to Jesus is we are his students. We want to learn how he views the world. We want to learn how he answers the fundamental questions of human existence. We want to study his teaching and the teaching of his earliest disciples in the scriptures. That's just what it is. It's to be a student of Jesus. And Jesus's central message was life in the kingdom. In Matthew 4 verse 17, the text says from that time on Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the central message of Jesus in the sermon on the mount, in the parables of the kingdom. He's constantly teaching about life 
in the kingdom of his heavenly father under the rule and reign of God. That was his message. That was his teaching and that that was available through him. See, the kingdom of God was at hand. You could grab it because Jesus, the Messiah had come to open up a way to enter into the rule, the reign of God. So as those disciples came to Jesus, as we come to Jesus, we come as students. We want to understand how did he understand the world? What was his mind like? What was he thinking about? How did he view his relationship with his heavenly father? But it's not just a learner. The other thing that would be immediately understood is that when a disciple comes to Jesus, they also come to Jesus as an apprentice of his overall way of life. It's not just learning what he teaches, but it's observing how he lives. See, we know that John the Baptist had disciples. Some of them, uh, Andrew's one of them, he leaves John the Baptist and he follows Jesus. And we know that John the Baptist taught, but he also had a certain way of life. And his disciples emulated it. Uh, the disciple, uh, Jesus' disciples come to him one time and they say, teach us to pray like John the Baptist taught his disciples. See, they, they want to know Jesus' way of life. How do you pray? Another time, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees saying, uh, our disciples fast and John the Baptist's disciples fast. Why don't your disciples fast? What's your way of life, Jesus? So when we come to Jesus as his disciple, we don't just come as a student of the scriptures, but we're looking in the scriptures for a manner of life, an embodied way of life in the world. What are the practices that Jesus taught and that he himself engaged in? Because I'm his disciple. He's my rabbi. He's my teacher. I want to learn from him how to live life in this world. And if Jesus's central message was that life was about the availability of the kingdom, the reign of God, do you know what he embodied? Do you know what he showed in his life? He showed what life in the kingdom looked like. He was constantly going around demonstrating how to live in the kingdom of his father. He would say things like this. I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. At one point, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus was aligning his will, the core of his being, to the will of his father. That's how he aligned himself to his father's kingdom resources. In John chapter 8, he says, and the one who sent me has not left me alone. He remains with me and I always do what he wants me to do. This was a window into Jesus's relationship with his father. He wasn't alone. God, the father was with him. He embodied a way of life of resigning, of relinquishing his will to the will of his father through prayer. We see in the garden of Gethsemane, he says, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus practiced Surrender. We sang, I surrender all. I wish it was that easy. I give it all to you today, Lord. But see, it's not that easy. We have to practice surrender, practice giving up control to our Lord. So immediately the disciples would have understood this. They're students and they're apprentices. Dallas Willard puts it this way. 
My central claim, he says in this book, is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his father. Notice that the point of Jesus's practices were not to become a good Christian. The point of Jesus's practices, according to Dallas Willard, is to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his father. That's why he prayed. That's why he fasted. That's why he would go off to the lonely places, the text tells us. He wanted to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his heavenly father. This is the embodied way of life in the kingdom. But there's a couple, there's actually quite a few, we're going to talk about three unique aspects to discipleship with Jesus. So they would have immediately understood that they're students and apprentices, but there's something different about Jesus. He's not just any other rabbi. He's not just any other teacher. He's the last rabbi they're ever going to have. The new Star Wars movie, I think, is called The Last Jedi, right? Is that right? Well, Jesus is the last rabbi. See, once, once you come to faith in Jesus, it's over. He's God. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So what the disciples slowly but surely realized is that it wasn't just learning his philosophy. It wasn't just learning his way of life. It was about him. Their allegiance wasn't just to his teaching and to his manner of life. Their allegiance was to him as Lord. A disciple of Jesus comes to Jesus and entrusts himself to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Jesus uh, makes this clear in Matthew 23. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters and call no man your father on earth. Uh, By the way, that's a tough passage on Father's Day, right? Uh, How are you going to, you might want to throw away that Father's Day card Uh, and call no man your father on earth. Whoops. Um, Just have your kids call you dad today. Uh, For you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. You see, Jesus is saying the goal here isn't for you disciples to now have your own disciples. That's how, that's how rabbinic discipleship worked. The, the, the disciple of a rabbi in the first century would eventually try to become a rabbi himself. In fact, part of the goal was to become a rabbi that was greater than your rabbi. But Jesus makes it clear that's not how this is going to work. It's not that we disciple ourselves to Jesus and then we have our own disciples. No, no, no. We come alongside people as brothers and sisters and we introduce them to Jesus. He's their master. He's their teacher. We are all disciples of him. And so the disciples had to understand that this was a different kind of discipleship. Uh, They weren't dealing with any other rabbi here. They were aligning themselves with the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But there's another way in which discipleship to Jesus was different. Disciples of Jesus 
follow Jesus in the way of the cross. One of the things the disciples slowly but surely understand and they struggle to understand throughout the gospels is that Jesus's way is a way of death. They were following him to the cross. See, when you live life in the kingdom of the father, you begin to love and you begin to want to sacrifice your good for the good of others. And Jesus exemplified that. He laid down his life for his friends. He offered up his life as an atonement for our sins. He went to the cross. And as followers of Jesus, our way is a cross way too. It's a cruciform way. It's a cross-formed way of life. We don't die on the cross for the sins of humanity. But as Jesus puts it, if anyone's to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does he mean by that? Take up his cross. Sometimes we think, well, that means kind of taking up your burdens. Jesus had his burden, the cross, and I have my burdens. I have my difficulties and they may be very difficult, but I don't think Jesus was talking about our burdens. If you saw someone walking around in the first century with a cross over their shoulder, it meant only one thing. They were going to die that day. They were being executed. So when Jesus uses this metaphor to say, take up your cross and follow me, it looks like what he's saying is your life on your terms is over. If you want to follow me, life on your terms is over. You're dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now it turns out that's the best life for us to get out of the way and allow Jesus to so invade our personalities that we become like he would be if he were us. But it's a way of dying, dying to self. It's painful. Dying is never fun. But death does not have the last word in discipleship to Jesus. Following Jesus is also following him in the way of the resurrection. Jesus died and he rose again. Paul says that God who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The the resurrection power of Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ who comes and indwells us and brings resurrection life to us. Not just at the end of life, though there's that too, but each and every day, Paul says we are being renewed inwardly day by day. As we die to self, the spirit of God has more access to us, his love, his grace, his truth, and that transforms us. In Matthew's gospel, we mentioned the great commission. Jesus ends his time with his disciples on earth by saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, immerse them, baptize them in the name, the character of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. By the way, that's not just about getting people wet. Baptism is a symbolic act 
of immersing ourselves in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's immersing ourselves in the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, go into all the world, make students of me and immerse them in the triune reality of God and teach them to do all that I've commanded you. And then here's the important part. He says, and behold, lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. See, this is a resurrected master, a resurrected Lord, a living Lord. As one of my students put it this way, he said, I I think I'm realizing that I don't relate to an idea. I relate to a person, Jesus. He's alive and well. He's still discipling people. He's discipling us. He's still making disciples. He's still calling people to himself. And we're involved in that mission, but we're not alone. He's with us. More real than this table or this bottle or those chairs. Jesus is here. He's with us. His resurrection life flows through us. And we live in an interactive relationship with him. As we die to ourselves, life with him begins to pervade our lives more fully. We sang earlier today, in your presence, we find our strength. Have you experienced that? That's a psychological reality. In your presence, we find our strength. Sometimes I don't think we realize that we would be a lot weaker without the Spirit of God. You may not realize that you're being strengthened right now. It might be because you've gotten used to the strengthening presence of Christ. Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. I can be content in all circumstances, Paul says in Philippians, uh, because Christ is strengthening me. Christ was a reality in Paul's life. He was literally strengthening Paul. And he's strengthening us as we learn to be his students and apprentice ourselves after him. Uh, Mike Wilkins, one of my colleagues at Talbot, uh, his whole life study has been the concept of discipleship. And he says this, talking about the Great Commission. Jesus concludes the commission with the crucial element of discipleship, the presence of the master. As the new disciple is baptized and taught to observe all that Jesus commanded, Jesus is present. Both those obeying the command and those responding are comforted by the awareness that the risen Jesus will continue to fashion all his disciples. The master is always present for his disciples to follow. See, that's part of what we need to rehearse together. We need to rehearse together whose we are and who we are and what our life is about, that Jesus is with us, that life is about discipleship to him. Because see, there's a lot of other messages in our world about what life's about and about who I am and who you are. And I need to be reminded regularly on Sundays, on Wednesday nights, maybe a few times during the week from brothers and sisters, I need to be reminded of whose I am, of who I am, of what life's about. So let me recap a little bit where we've come. A disciple of Jesus is a student of Jesus's teachings. A disciple of Jesus is an apprentice of his overall way of life. A disciple of Jesus increasingly trusts the person of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus in the way of the cross and the way of the resurrection. That's what we've been invited into, my friends. 
We've been invited into a discipleship relationship with Jesus. Let me close with three applications or implications of what we've been talking about. The first one is this. When we place our faith in Jesus, we accept his call to be his disciples, to be his students, to be his apprentices. I don't think I understood that when I got saved. I'm sure there was someone who was explaining it that way, but I think what I thought when I got saved is that I needed help with a sin problem. I had guilt between me and God and Jesus atoned for my sins on the cross so that I can be forgiven. And that's true, but I thought that's all of what it was. Maybe I thought too that this idea of Jesus could solve my loneliness problem, my sin problem and my loneliness problem. And certainly Jesus solves our sin problem in his finished work on the cross. And in principle, he solves our loneliness problem. But I don't think I understood that I had entered into a student relationship with Jesus, an apprentice relationship with Jesus. I don't think I understood that Jesus wanted to teach me how to live life with him in his father's kingdom. And yes, forgiveness is a first step into that reality. But it's much bigger than that. It's holistic. It's all of life. We come to Jesus to learn from him how to become like him, how to live life with him in his father's kingdom, under his father's rule and reign. This is a lifetime pursuit. The second implication is really just to specify that if we think about the different uh, things we've been talking about today, we might define discipleship as this. Discipleship to Jesus involves being students of his teaching And practicing the activities he engaged in, prayer, scripture meditation, fellowship with others. As we come to trust his lordship more and more, that he's in control and we're not. Which is just to die to life on our own terms. It's to die to our own lordship and allow his life-giving spirit to transform us from the inside out. When I think about this vision of the Christian life, there's at least two things that immediately come to mind. One, this is easier said than done. And we're going to need help. We need each other. Jesus calls his disciples brothers and sisters. The church is gathered as family because we need help to remain attached to the head. We need the body of Christ to attach us to the head, to hold us before Jesus as his disciples. We come together to help one another, to support one another, to encourage one another, to teach one another, to love one another, to confess our sins to one another so that we can remain in this discipleship relationship with Jesus that transforms us. The second thing that comes to mind is if we enter into this this reality of discipleship with Jesus, we don't need to worry about mission or evangelism or service. The reason we don't need to worry about it is because if we're becoming more like Jesus, if we're learning to have the kind of compassion and love and willingness to sacrifice that he had, mission will take care of itself. Evangelism will take care of itself. We, we won't, we'll have to be held back because of what God is doing in us. The last point I want to make from what we've been talking about today is this. And I think this is perhaps the most important point. 
Because discipleship is a way of life with Jesus, we need to have a plan in place to enter into that way of life more and more. What's your plan to become more like Jesus today? This week, this month, this year. I was driving with my daughter, Sienna. She's nine. Just yesterday, we were, we were leaving our house, backing out of the driveway. I was taking her to an end-of-the-season soccer picnic at a park, and it was hot. It's one of the things I remember about the picnic. And as we were driving out of the, backing out of the driveway, I was thinking about this sermon today. In fact, I was thinking about this point, about having a plan to become more like Jesus. And I turned to my daughter, actually, as we're backing up. I just said to her, I said, Sienna, what's our plan to become more like Jesus today. I kind of thought she would just say, dad, turn on the radio. Uh, but she, she responded and, and she took the question seriously. And she began to talk about some things that we could do at the park to be more like Jesus. And I said, honey, those are great ideas. And Jesus was able to do those things because he lived in interactive fellowship with his heavenly father. So maybe we should pray right now to remind ourselves of whose we are and of who we are. And what life's about for us. Because we want to become more like Jesus. And so we spent that drive. Now not the whole drive. But a good chunk of it. Talking about how we can become more like Jesus. What our plan was. See I want to live intentionally more like that. I want to be thinking more consistently. What's my plan? Not out of guilt. Not out of obligation. Not out of legalism. Out of invitation. Jesus offered us a new way of life. We're going to have to live some way in this world. Why not his way? And so what's my plan to learn from Jesus, to be an apprentice of him, how to become more like him in this world? Prayer, but how am I going to pray? What am I going to pray? Maybe the Lord's prayer is a good place to start. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And talk to God about that prayer. Scripture, yes, but how am I going to engage Scripture? How much during the day? With who? In what manner? Am I going to write a a, a verse on a three-by-five card and put it on my dashboard? Am I going to put it in my pocket? Am I going to pause at lunch? What's your plan? What are you doing already? What can you add to your plan? Again, not out of legalism, not out of guilt, out of invitation to life with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. This is the best life for us. I want to end with this story. Uh, pastor Ken Ulmer is uh, a pastor of uh, a largely African-American church in Inglewood, California. And I was reading an article uh, that he wrote recently. And he was talking about a young African-American pastor who was pastoring a small church. And this young African-American pastor noticed an an older woman in the back of the church, an an old mother of the church. And he noticed that every Sunday in the African-American tradition of worship, she would shout exuberant praise to the Lord. Alleluia. Thank you, Jesus. And he noticed that no matter if he was preaching a really good sermon, she would shout. If he was preaching a not so good sermon, she would shout. If the choir was singing wonderfully, she would shout. If the choir wasn't singing so well, she would still shout out praise to the Lord. And he finally got up the courage to go ask her, how is it that week after week, no matter how the service goes, you come in here ready to praise God. And this Kenneth Ulmer says, 
is what she said. Well, son, I've been on the road for a long time. And when I come in here, I come with one thing on my mind. I come to see Jesus. And when I see Jesus, I think about the goodness of the Lord and all he's done for me. And I can't help but shout. And when the choir is singing under the anointing, I look at the choir and I see Jesus. And when I see Jesus, I think about the goodness of the Lord and I can't help but shout. And when the power of the Lord is on you, when you preach, I look at you and I see Jesus and I think about the goodness of the Lord and I can't help but shout. But when I come in here and the choir is singing a little off and they forget the words and they sing off key. And when I look at you and you ain't got no anointing, (laughs) I look around the choir and I look around you. And I still see Jesus. And when I see Jesus and I think about the goodness of the Lord and all he's done for me, I can't help but shout because I came to see Jesus. You see, that mother had a plan. She had an intention. She came to see Jesus. She had one thing on her mind. I want to become more like that. Where each and every day I wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I want to see you today. Before I pick up my iPhone and check the texts or the emails or the weather or the traffic. Jesus, I give this day to you. I'm your disciple. I'm your student. Help me to see the way of life that you have on offer. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, master, rabbi, teacher. Thank you for inviting us into a discipleship relationship with yourself. Thank you for this group of brothers and sisters who come together week after week to rehearse whose they are, who they are, what their lives are about in light of that. Lord, strengthen us with your presence. Help us to experience the reality of life with you that we might grow to become more like you and spread your love and your truth to the world. In your name, amen.